0: Jesus, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, God, for just giving us sound minds. Lord, that you've given us self-control to heed your word and to listen to you and to follow paths, Lord, that lead in righteousness. God, we ask that every word that proceed from my mouth, Lord, or just be from your heart. Lord, we don't want to hear from you. We just announce cleverness of man, We just announce any man-pleasing spirit that try and have good things to be heard for the sake of being liked. And Lord, we just want to come and just hear what you want to say. Lord, we want to live lives that are radical and outrageous. God, help us to live different lives. Lives that are worthy of being demanded for an explanation. God, we just invite your manifest presence here. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Who here likes to read? Oh, my wife's hand was first to go up. Look at that. She's like, my wife has the gift of enormous speed reading. She can read about a thousand pages a minute, probably actually, literally a thousand pages maybe a day. I don't know if I've read a thousand pages in my life. So um, I know I just preached a couple weeks ago on reading the word, but fun fact, I actually do not like to read. Uh, it's boring. It uh, my mind just like wanders, and I think of like, you know, I'd rather do gardening, I think than than reading, but Uh, I remember one time, it probably wasn't more than a year or two ago, that we're talking about my wife's fascination for reading. I mean, she can even read in bed, too, which is astounding to me. I get tired just watching her read in bed, but she just loves to read. And so one time she asked me, what were the books that you liked to read as a kid? Tell me. And I'm like, I don't know if I read any. (laughs) It's like, I know I'm like, Somewhat educated, but I actually can't remember any books. Like Green Eggs and Ham for sure. I know, I know, I got that one. Uh, maybe Cat in the Hat. Um, and she's like, I read War and Peace in third grade, and you know, she won all like the reading awards, and she told me accolades that I never knew existed. She was in like a summer camp, I think, just for reading, <laughs> it was like something like that, like a reading club. I don't know. She was amazing, amazing reader. The point is. Um, I was trying to think of books that I had read, and I was like, I can't really think of anyone's that stand out, but I do remember a book, and it's like a series of books. I don't remember anything that happened in the book, but it's called Choose Your Own Adventure. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? All right. <laughs> so Choose Your Own Adventure. This is the lazy man's way of reading. So the book has all these different choices and decisions in it. So as you're reading, you go into a spot and maybe like the characters are lost. And it'll say, if you want the characters to go ride the bicycle, you know, turn to page 42. If you want them to go into the pathway of the woods, turn to page 89. If you want them to get in the boat and go down the river, turn to page 104. And so you make all these different decisions and the story evolves. No single story is ever the same. And so I actually do remember in reading books, like I would try and get my teacher to like allow me to do book reports on these books because they were usually very short. And they were like, you had some control in the process of deciding. But each decision would wildly affect the direction of the story. You even had power to give them bad decisions to make. When they would face an adversary, you could either run, fight, or yell for help. And because I kind of knew how the book was going to go, the worst decisions they made, the shorter the book would be. Because usually they would like not survive the bad decisions you're giving them. But it was amazing to have this like, wow, I can make decisions for them and watch how it all plays out. And eventually I would go back and read and like, what would have happened if I would have done this? And a wildly different story would emerge. And so tonight's message is called Choose Your Own Adventure. And it came to mind when I came across Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. This is our passage for tonight. It says this, says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. I set before you life and death, so choose life so that you may live for you and your descendants. Your very own life is like a choose-your-own-adventure book. You to make decisions that wildly are going to change the course, the direction, and the trajectory of your future. I've shared stories in the past of individuals I've known that have veered off the course and made decisions that forever altered the, their entire future. One familiar one is a friend of ours, a family. A man, he was heir to a bank, how you know there's a lot of money in, in banks? It's pretty significant. Air to a Bank. We're like not talking thousands of dollars, millions, we We're billions of dollars, and he is in the lineage. His whole entire family line controls the bank. And if he would just would stay in the game long enough, he would put in his time. If he just would survive long enough, this bank and all the billions of dollars and all the influence would become his. And he made a series of decisions in which he in in. Uh, inappropriately accessed accounts, made some bad decisions, and he was in jail. And he had young children at the time. I think his youngest was about one-year-old, and he was in prison for five years. Now think about that. You go to prison for five years, and you go in with a one-year-old, and you come out with a seven-year-old. Going from just a little baby who can't walk or talk, coming out into a second grader. It's fascinating. And beyond that is that he will never be able to work in finance again. He completely altered his entire future. And so these stories of watching how people have gone off the course and had radical departures for what was very available for them to succeed has been very interesting for me. In case you have been under a rock for the past few months, and I'm in tech, so I guess I'm a little more familiar with nerdy things, there was a very, very significant event that happened in the world. There's a particular website in which 32 million people are on. 32 million adults, to be, in fact. And just for reference, there are 245 million adults in the U.S., so if those accounts were legitimate, that's about 13% of the adult population on this website. And this website... It's not Facebook. It's not Instagram. It's a website that helps organize men to have affairs. It's a website that helps set up and arrange men to cheat. And so at the end of June, the first part of July, hackers came in and they were able to penetrate the database and extract all the names, all the email addresses, all the identifications, all the preferences, sexual fantasies, all of that stuff, and download it. And so what the hackers did is they said, meet our demands or we're going to put this information public. And they gave them 60 days. So what happened after 60 days, their demands weren't met. And on Pastebin, the hackers published all the data. Terabytes of information. All for free for people to download. August 18th is the day that happened. And on that day... We discovered a lot of people were on there. There's 15,000 government or military email addresses on there. There were 500 emails associated with people at Fortune 500 companies, the top companies in the world Cisco, Apple, Microsoft, Bank of America, top executives. There were three email addresses associated with the Vatican, the Pope, not him himself, I don't think, but still. There were 300 email addresses of faculty, professors, and staff at Christian universities, Liberty University and Oral Roberts University. There's countless pastors, there's countless ministry leaders, there's countless Christians in this database that are all being exposed. Just this past week, a very famous theologian was stripped of his position, a famous theologian, because he confessed that he was found. And I find myself reading these stories who've fallen victim to their decisions. This past week, we were in Oregon seeing my family. And we were in a store and we are browsing around. I've just been fascinated, like, just watching these things kind of unfold and seeing things come out. And like, I, I ask myself, like, I, there's something that's drawing to me to like read these stories. And it, and it ranges from not only just this hack, but other incidences. I'm just drawn to, to expose my eyes and my heart to the decisions that people are making. Whether it's the wife who found that her husband, who is also a Christian professor, has been cheating on her. The devastation she had as she pounded the walls and she actually lost bladder control because she was so devastated. Down to the stories of the man whose children won't speak to him. Down to the, to the other individuals who've, who've just lost everything in life and they wish they could take it back. And it's heartbreaking for me. And so the question becomes, how do we stop this? In Christianity, how do we stop this? And Christianity has two motivations, or two tactics, if you will. The carrot and the stick. You ever heard of that? Carrot and the stick. It's a metaphor for like a mule, right? You use a carrot to like reward, like to bring the mule to you, and use the stick for punishment. Use the stick to like whack it into obedience. So Christianity has the carrot and the stick. The most popular is the Christian stick. It's the fear of punishment. It's the condemnation. It's fear. It's judgment. It's a great motivator. Fear is an amazing motivator for people. But you know what? Despite fear being a great motivator, it's not the motivation of God. That is not an instrument of God. Condemnation is a great motivator for people to be into obedience, but it's not an instrument of God. These are the instruments of the devil. Then there's the carrot motivation, which is something that our ministry tries to ascribe to, and this is that you would be drawn and motivated from who God says you are, who the Bible says you are, who you are in Christ, your son and a daughter that this is not who you are, this is who you are, and who you are does not behave like that. It's a response to love. It's a call to obedience through acceptance and obedience to God because He first was obedient to go on the cross for you. It's a completely different mindset. And these instruments are from God, and these instruments are effective. Yet, how on earth do we have theologians of all people being found and coming to these ends? The problem, as I see it, is that the decisions of choosing life and death are not decisions that are made with great contemplation. They're not ones where they sit down and like, I'm going to take about four weeks and consider this. When I consider temptation, it's not like I have you know, pitchforks and demons over here, and I have angels and harps over here. I'm like, which shall I choose? Shall I choose singing butterflies or coffins? I don't know. Like, it's not like that. The decisions that are encountered are ones of split-second decisions. You don't have that much time. You don't have that much time to consider it all. In fact, the decisions I feel between life and death are often about choosing one of two unmarked trails. Which shall I choose, life or death? We don't know that we're choosing life or death because it happens in a split second. And it's in those split seconds that you have an adversary that is lying to you. You have a millisecond in which we make decisions. Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book called Blink. Basically, says that you make decisions in fractions of seconds. And so on that premise, you make decisions for life or death in a fraction of a second, and in that fraction of a second, you have an adversary who's lying to you. And there are many lies I could share with you tonight about what happens in that split second, but I just want to share two with you tonight. The two that, to me, are the ones I identify with most. You guys ready? You don't really have a choice, actually. The first lie is that it's no big deal. When choosing life or death, when you choose the two unmarked paths, and you're being tempted, the first lie that you have in the split second is a lie that's not a big deal. Everyone sins. You're only human. It's human nature. It's part of who you are. Satan wants to minimize what's at stake in your life. Satan does not want you to put any thought into consideration. He just wants you to move on past, act, and think later. I actually identify with that. I'd rather, I, I shoot, ready, aim, in that order usually. And that is good in some circumstances, bad in this. But, but the devil wants to minimize the situation. He wants to minimize the significance of what's happening. It happened in the Garden of Eden. Remember, God is like, hey, don't eat the fruit, all right? Pretty clear, you'll die. Can I be any more clear? Got it, cool. And Satan comes like, did God really say that? I mean, tomato, tomato, you know, like he knows that you're going to be like him. It's all right. If you reread the fall, you'll see how like there was question and gray area and like, I think you just missed it in translation. I don't know if you really caught it. No big deal. And in this way, Satan is like a drug dealer, which I don't have any experience with. <laughs> but <laughs> this isn't one of those things like I have a friend who no, no, I actually know how this works. Because actual um, business marketing, which I'm in business, like they, they actually teach like the the most effective entrepreneurs are actually drug dealers. And so there's actually a lot of um, marketing material and, and, and things on how to like get followers. It's terrible. I'm going to stop because it's not bad. Anyways, here's what they do. is they first minimize, it's no big deal. And they give you something for free. Just try it. No big deal. Whatever. You go to any website, any business service. No credit card required. Decide. Try it for free. No big deal. Cancel anytime. Right? You see it all. It's the exact same way that we're getting our entire generation stuck on addiction. It starts with no big deal. It comes in a bite-sized piece, right? It's not like Satan comes and backs up a truck and it's like, here's all your sin. Do you want it? You know, he's like, he's going to piecemeal it, right? He's going to give you something very tiny and tangible. He's going to be like, it's not a big deal. Don't forget it. It's just a white lie. It's just 20 bucks. It's not a big deal. It's just words. It's just a little fun. It's just one drink. It's just a friend. It's just a magazine. It's just a movie. It's just a text message. It's just a click. It's just a website. That is the first step. It's to completely minimize it because Satan wants to get you comfortable in one inch of water before he leads you into an ocean of bondage. Let me say that again. Satan wants to get you comfortable in one inch of water before he leads you into an ocean of bondage. And it comes through minimizing and reducing the significance of what's at stake. And the trick is to get you so you don't notice that it's increasing. Satan even works against my optimism. I'm a pretty optimistic guy. Um, Actually, I have situations in their significance through my optimism. I'm, I'm so optimistic, the thought actually last week came through my mind, like, what if Satan got saved? Wouldn't that be cool? Like, maybe he's just misunderstood. Maybe he's just got like a bad streak and he could turn it around. That's how optimistic I am. It's like, hmm, that's not going to ever happen. But that's kind of like for a second, I was like, maybe it could happen. I don't know. You know, all things are possible with Jesus, right? You know, like, that's how optimistic I am. But here's how my optimism works against me, okay? Is that I want to protect myself from being sad. My optimism works in such a degree that I don't want to read things that are depressing, that are sad, that disturb me. I don't want to read things that harsh my mellow and kill my buzz. I don't want to do those things. My optimism wants me to be happy and that, oh, it's all good and we're all friends and it's all great and everything's going to work out. And sometimes that's not the truth, And that's a form of rebellion and denial for me that my optimism, I hide behind it. But there's a truth in here is that I need to not protect me from being sad. I need to not shield my eyes from actually looking at evil in the face and be affected by what's going on. There's some very disturbing things that are happening in the world, and I'm like, I know like, I shouldn't look at it, but I have to because I need to be affected by it. If you've seen the the picture of the toddler washed ashore in Syria, you have to look at it. You have to look at evil in the eye. You have to allow yourself to be affected by what's going on. And that goes the same for these stories. I now know why I'm finding these stories. I'm taking interest because I, I, can't, I can't turn a blind and just assume that every husband's faithful. Every business works out well. I can't just assume that everyone's always on good behavior, that no one lies. I can't do that anymore. And so I also need to look straight in the face of these stories and actually look in the mirror and say, I'm actually capable of this. It's foolish of me to say, oh, i have never make a bad decision. No. I actually need to read these stories and say, I am capable of all these things that these people are doing, even this theologian. It's easy for us to look at, I would never do that. And so we look at these things and I need to stop pretending that I'm not capable of what these people have done and I need to stop pretending that evil doesn't exist. I actually need to be heartbroken for the decisions that people are making on their behalf. I need to have that grasp of reality because when I face temptation, I have that split second. If I have that split second between temptation that I have a reference point of like, nope, I know where that goes because I looked it in the eye. I looked in the face and I said, I know how someone got there and I'm at their starting point. I'm not going to go there. And so we need to look at these things in the face and say, I am actually capable of that. But let me trace it back so that when I'm in my own moment, because we're always, all of us are going to be in a great moment of temptation. All of us, I thoroughly believe that we're going to have moments where our life will either take a hard left turn or hard right turn. And in those moments, I want to be prepared. I want to say, I know where that path leads. I've seen it. I've read the stories. I remember what they said. And so when choosing life or death, I want to be well-informed of my options because I know I'm not going to have time to like take it all in and think about it. So that as I face temptation, I'm reminded of that broken heart, that one story I read. That's what I want. Lie number two. You have grace. In the moment of your temptation... That split second that you're going to make that decision, the first lie is not a big deal. The second lie, you've got grace. Now the devil has turned you have grace to mean there are no consequences. This is very important. The lie is that you have grace, which you do. You do have grace. But the devil has tricked us into believing that that means There are no consequences. I'm the biggest grace preacher you'll ever find. Like, ever. (laughs) I love the gospel and the grace theology. I just, I love it. It motivates me. Like, I want to be driven towards love and embraced by acceptance. Like, I'm all about grace. But the lie in the moment, that split second, is that I have grace. Here's what grace actually really is. That God loves you and accepts you no matter what. Whatever you did yesterday, today, or tomorrow. He loves you no matter what. You are adopted into the family of God and you will never be able to remove yourself. Sorry. You're stuck with God and he is embracing you no matter what. Grace is that your sins were paid for at the cross 2,000 years ago. This is old news to Jesus. Just get over it. Grace says, get back up and get back in the game. Grace says, God remembers your sin no more. I've preached many messages on how God is like, I don't know what you're talking about. Have you seen what my son did? Yeah, I thought so. That is grace. Grace is just this unbelievable thing that we just we do not even understand at all. And it's just overwhelming how amazing grace is, but that isn't the lie that's at stake. The lie is that you don't have any consequences. If you do this, it's only going to affect you. It's not that big a deal. But just because you have grace doesn't mean that you are immune from outcomes. <clears throat> when the devil says you have grace, he's lying and making you believe that grace and no consequences are the same, which they are not. If I rob a bank, which I've I don't know if you like ever been like the bank and like I wonder if I could just grab that. <laughs> I don't know, like if you're at the airport you're like I wonder if I could like get through with something illegal. I don't know. My mind kind of works that way. But if I were to rob a bank, <laughs> I won't do that. If I were to rob a bank, I would still be a beloved son of God. I would have grace. But my butt's going to jail. If I rob a bank, I am still God's beloved son, embraced, forgiven, redeemed, covered by the blood of lamb, but I'm going to do 10 to 20. That's the reality of it. Is that God, and don't say God's sending me to jail? God's not sending you to jail. Your decisions are. There's like people like, I went to jail and God, you know, led me to start a prison ministry there. And they like, no, he didn't. Like you're just, you know, I'm glad you're starting a prison ministry because now you're in jail. But that's not his plan. Like that was, you know, what's happening now. Anyways, I digress. But make no mistake about it. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But make no mistake about it. You aren't the only one affected by your sin. This is not of God. I don't believe God partners in fear to bring you to repentance. I do not believe that. I was partnering with Satan. I don't think he does that. So there's nothing about that at all. But the devil wants you to believe that you only harm yourself with your own sin. One of the lies is like, it's not going to be that big a deal. It's not going to affect anybody else, but you need to know that when you, when you participate in decisions that cause death, they aren't just limited to you, whether it's lying, stealing, cheating, whatever it is. They aren't limited to you, and part of the devil's lies is that there are no consequences beyond you, that any harm that's done is only going to be stuck to you and nobody else. It's like, you know, sins will never pay for other generations like all those other Bible verses, Right? But sin is selfish. Sin is selfish. You only think about yourself when you are sinning. And I'm like, oh, what do the children think about this? Like, no, no, no. You are all about you. And that's the lie is that we are too focused on ourselves. So let's ask ourselves, is this true? Are you the only one affected? Are you the only one that's affected by your decisions? Remember a passage for the night? Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live. Look how it ends. You and your descendants. You and your descendants. Sounds just like regular Old Testament speak, right? God talking about his descendants again, you know. Two weeks ago, two weeks ago. Researchers at Mount Sinai in New York, for the first time, have discovered evidence that suggests that experiences of your life can affect subsequent generations. I'm not talking about you being educated. I'm not talking about the money that you have. I'm not talking about the languages that you know, or where you've traveled, or all those different things that can affect children and how you raise them. No, we're talking about evidence that says your experiences actually transition to DNA of your offspring. It's called epigenetic tags. Has anybody heard about this? This is crazy. Brian Orm talked a whole bunch about some amazing stuff with like DNA and helixes, and you're like, this is tense, you know? And I was like, really? Mm." And then I see this, and scientists are saying, yeah, your experiences actually can change DNA for generations. Here is what the study found, is that these epigenetic tags, they are proteins that attach themselves to genes, and they turn on or off functions. Epigenetic tags will turn on and off various genes. And so the researchers from Mount Sinai published a study last month finding that, that experiences transmitted to DNA to children turned off certain genes in a very specific group. And it's coming through these epigenetic tags. Your experiences are shaping how these tags are attaching themselves. And their, their primary experiment was people who were affected by the Holocaust they had two, con- two groups, one lineage of people who were either exposed to uh, the concentration camps, witnessed it, had family members, escaped it, went into hiding. The other was a Jewish lineage that was outside of Europe during World War II. They looked at the bloodline of the children, and they studied the genetic sequence of both bloodlines, And in the lineage of the people who experienced trauma from the Holocaust, the children had epigenetic tags on stress-related genes that are linked to numerous stress disorders. And let me remind you, these are children that weren't even conceived sometimes decades after the war. An experience that was never even near them prior to these experiences. Later on when they conceived, their children had a genetic Deficiency that gave them a proclivity for stress disorders. Crazy. Absolutely crazy. And so now we have to ask ourselves, now this is this is about trauma, right? Let me make that distinction. But this is the first evidence that we actually show that experiences can transcend to genetics. That's pretty wild. Your decisions aren't limited to you. If you can't live for yourself, live for your next generation, live for your legacy. Like now that I like, I read this. Like I now know that every click of the mouse, every send of the text, every decision, every person I meet, and everything I do now, actually, it sounds cliche like the movies. Like what you do now will echo in eternity. It actually is scientific. Heavy. What you are doing now could be altering the DNA of generations. Don't tell me that I have grace and it doesn't matter and it's only limited to me. It's not. I thought it was unusual that the scripture said to you and your descendants. Now this is the negative side, but I want to be like, man, what happens is we have amazing experiences, amazing encounters with God. What is that doing to our DNA that is setting up generations for God? that's exciting. And as more time passes and more research comes forward, I think we're going to be more informed by it. But when you choose life and death, those decisions are rippling through generations. There are infinite things. I'm going to wrap up here. There are infinite things that I can't control. I can't control the weather. I can't control the stock market. I can't control, if my kids love Jesus, I can't control natural disasters, I can't control criminals, I can't control dictators, I can't control many things. And I'm kind of like a control freak in hiding. But the one thing that I can control is my decision. The single thing that I actually can control in my life is my decisions. And I get to choose the power of life and death in my decisions in the split second, when I'm faced with choices of life or death, for me and my descendants, I need to remember these two things, is that my life is significant. Everything in your life is significant. Don't tell me that this decision doesn't matter. Don't tell me that it's insignificant. Your life is significant. Your decisions are significant. They are altering the future. The second thing is that how I live now impacts Generations both relationally, physically, and now we know genetically that how you live can be altering the future in ways we've never known. So don't tell me that it only affects you. It's affecting everything. Whenever never knew your life was so important, because it is. So now as you think in the split second, how will I decide? Will I choose life or death? So choose your own adventure. I love you guys.